quick note before we dive into this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I recorded this interview a couple months ago, and then due to both coronavirus, but uh, you know, a couple other factors, it, it's just been delayed longer than I thought it would. So we make no mention of of Corona. We don't. We are in a little bit different headspace than I think we might be today. But the story the founders tell, the conversation, is still extremely compelling. I just wanted you to have that in mind as you listen to this episode. Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Each week on the show, you hear from startup founders who are ambitious, but some of them bootstrap and some self-fund and others raise small amounts of money. The uniting factor is that they want to build great companies and they want to build great lives for themselves. And they don't want to go down the traditional venture track of go big, go home. I have to build a unicorn or bust. This week, we hear from Arvid Call and Danielle Simpson, the co-founders of Feedback Panda. Arvid and Danielle did an attendee talk at MicroConf in Croatia just a few months back. And I wanted to invite them on the show because of how interesting their story is. Over two years, they bootstrapped Feedback Panda to 55K MRR with no employees. Feedback Panda is student feedback for teachers. So they were selling into the teacher market. They had rapid growth via word of mouth and a clever referral program. And they really caught a nice wave in language learning. So we dive into all kinds of things today. They eventually sold the company for a life-changing sum of money after two years. And in this conversation, you'll hear about Arvid and Danielle's struggles, their victories, their, their failures, the anxiety, the highs and the lows. And we dig into a lot of um, pretty fascinating things. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. And with that, let's dive into the conversation with Arvid and Danielle of Feedback Panda. Arvid and Danielle, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, hi. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us. I am just so fascinated with your story. Growing in two years as bootstrappers from zero to 55K MRR is just a fascinating story. And so I want to start off kind of almost with the, the prototypical hero's journey of looking at the end of that journey. And I'd love to hear, what did it feel like when you saw the money from selling Feedback Panda enter your bank account, when you refreshed that and you saw all those zeros? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. It was such a mix of relief of, uh, you know, never having seen that amount of money before, just shock uh, to have that amount on one bank account, total just happiness. And yeah. How about you? Yeah, it, it was a, it was pretty strange. It's uh, quite the weird feeling. And the, the weird part about it to me was how nothing really changed, right? You have all these kind of stories you hear about lives being changed and it does change in a numerical way but we were still in our apartment that we've been in before for the two years prior building the business like every single day and we were still sitting on the same chairs on the same couch i think the only thing we did was really like get out a two two glasses and some affordable <laughs> champagne and just have in a, the morning yeah right just have a yeah right because that's 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 when we saw it due to the the time difference between the states and Germany where we live mm. yeah we just cheers and then that was it right yeah. and then we we went right to the transition because that is also uh, one of the bigger things you need to do at that point but it was it was a wonderful feeling um, also I guess just a couple hours later and a couple days later the feeling of dread. And the feeling of, okay, now, what now came to the forefront of my mind, at least, because like, you, you just wonder, okay, now this is done and you kind of have to shift your thinking. So 
there was a there was a lot of joy and a lot of slight to medium confusion. And it kind of oscillated yeah. between all of those emotions for the next few months, I would say. Well, yeah, it's such a massive transition. And I, I hear this often from entrepreneurs who sell their companies. And I went through the same thing a couple of times. And so it, it makes sense that, you know, your response was elation, followed by confusion, followed by some day drinking, which is something I highly <laughs> recommend. Once you finish it, once you sell your company, like, please day drink a day or two, just take, take a day off. So, you know, what's fascinating is, is Arvid, you just said, our lives didn't change. We still were in this apartment, sitting in the same chairs, drinking affordable champagne. And what I find when I talk to makers is like, we don't do it for the money. We do it for the freedom. We do it so that we can make and work on interesting projects and build things that we want to build rather than buy a Maserati or buy a big house. I am curious, did, did you guys buy anything interesting or cool with, with the money that you know, maybe you had never indulged in before? We uh, we definitely took a very nice vacation. We we spent ten days in South Africa, and it was amazing to be in the middle of the African bush, and and be in the middle of nature, and and have something that we didn't have for the past two years: the privilege of being fully present yeah. in those moments where we weren't looking at intercom while we're also trying to look at an elephant or something like that. So that was quite indulgent. Yeah, the, I, I think that that was the, the true luxury was the, it, having time to ourselves, both as people who have been working 24-7 for two years and as a couple, just to be able to be present with each other. I think the, no Maserati could buy us that kind of luxury uh, as much as a vacation, just being away from it all could have done. But like material things, I don't think so. And I think you're absolutely right. Like makers do it for the, the making, not for the raking. Right, you don't try to rake it, and you just try to continue making stuff. That that is that is what you want to do. And I, we were at um at an event at a Berlin startup community just a couple weeks prior to the whole due diligence phase and the negotiations and all that stuff. And there were people talking there about this kind of post economic state of mind, and that's what you want to reach. You want to reach a financial stability that allows you to make decisions that do not hinge on you being financially stable from the decisions you make in the business, right? It's like you can make risky business choices because you know that personally your finances are in order. And that's one of the things that actually led us to consider selling the, the business is that all of our assets were bound in it. I mean, we had a great business, but there was also a lot to lose at the later point, later stage, like in the second year of the business. So yeah. That is that is one of those those kind of feelings that we had in addition to the the normal kind of dread of having a running a gigantic business with just two people. Absolutely, and and most entrepreneurs are just way under diversified, right? Because if their company goes under, I mean, many of us, most entrepreneurs who who are having success like you had, literally have millions of dollars tied up into a small business and they might have $100,000 in the public stock market. It's completely undiversified. And I don't think a lot of people think about that. And in the last episode, Ruben Gomez was on and he brought up a really good point that I, I feel like we should hit hammer home is can't run a business like we run and expect it to be here in 10 or 20 years. A lot of these businesses just don't make it because of the massive shifts in Google and APIs and, and protocols. And you know how many SaaS companies do we know that, that really last that long? It's a lot more difficult than it than it seems. I'm curious, can you talk about how much you sold the company for? 
Well, we cannot talk about how much we sold the company for, but what we can say is the fact that we, we sold it for a life-changing amount of money. Right? That's that's why we got out the champagne, because it was actually something to celebrate, but we, we can't be specific about the numbers. Of course. Yep, there's most acquisitions, especially at these types of sizes, are under NDA. I'm going to do some loose math. Don't confirm or deny this, but when I think of a, of a company selling to a financial buyer, 55K MRR, mostly profit because you had no employees, that's 660,000 ARR. And if I mean, if three to four X multiple puts it somewhere in the 1.5 to $2.5 million range in my head, if it was a strategic buyer, it would be, it would be a little more, but I just so listeners have a context, I have zero inside information. And again, I don't, I don't want you to confirm or deny, but that's probably the, the kind of range we're talking about if this was a kind of market rate sell. Interesting. You like that? Yeah, that's a great, great. Yeah, we won't confirm or deny anything, but definitely an interesting insight. In interesting also into the math, because that's what most people are really interested in. Just we were also interested in, right? Trying to figure out how much our business might be worth. And there were numbers like multipliers from something below one to something above 10. And people were talking about SaaS and content and e-commerce and all these different kinds of things. There's a lot of information in the market. There's a lot of misinformation in the market. And every transaction seems to be extremely unique when it comes to the actual numbers that the multipliers, whichever ones are chosen, actually work on. Because like you said, we had essentially just the two of us as employees, and that's founder employees. It's a different math than if we had four employees, but the founders didn't work in the company. So all, all these kind of things just go into a, a very complicated piece of like mathematics. So I think ranges are usually the best you can do. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing is you're in a unique situation because most companies doing 55k MRR have, have multiple employees, you know, have a team of three, four, five people, which would make it much less profitable than, you know, than I'm expecting Feedback Panda was. Sales multiples also depend a lot, so much on growth rate, right? A company that's declining versus flat versus growing 5% month over month, 20% month over month. That's where this gets very complicated and there is no one formula. It's just negotiation at that point. I am curious if you had held out longer, if you waited another 6, 12, 18 months, do you feel like you could have sold for more? Like, were you, were you continuing to grow? And do you feel like you could have made more money having held out? Absolutely. There were channels that we hadn't yet activated. Feedback Panda is in a quite price-sensitive niche, but we regularly had customers proclaiming on, on Facebook that they would be willing to pay more. Uh, we just didn't flip that switch. And so I, I do see, and, and if you look at our previous numbers as well, we had a steady growth rate for our entire lifetime and we weren't really slowing down. So Yeah, we, we were kind of piggybacking on the growth of the Chinese education market too. So that, that, and that one is still growing, right? With Feedback Panda's customers being recruited by Chinese online English teaching schools, we were selling to mostly North American teachers that were hired by Chinese companies. And there's a lot going on in China when it comes to online teaching, which is a 
presence of like the internet in even more rural areas and all these kind of things. And that growth didn't stall. There was no plateau in sight. There was a lot of competition in sight, which again, if you look at Chinese businesses, is a pretty good sign of a healthy industry because as long as there's competition, there's no clear winner and there's growth. So we were essentially, our growth trajectory was very much aligned with the Chinese education system growth trajectory. And that one was still and is still going. That's great when you can catch a wave like that. Did was that a bit of luck, or did you did you guys see that that wave was coming and, and hop on it? It was both. We got lucky that we were in a position to see the wave coming, and that we were in that position, ready to build something. I saw the problem, and you know, we just hopped right in. Yeah, I think so. The, the lucky part was that Danielle injured her leg at some point. <laughs> as as lucky as it as this can be, right? Because that made you have to work from home, so you needed to find something to actually do. I guess as an opera singer, you can't really work from home that much. It's not easy to sing in in an apartment, but it is easy to teach. And and that worked. And these companies, these Chinese companies just came up at that point. They've been around for, I would guess, like three or four or five months at that point. Not, Not much longer than that. So we were just at the beginning of that kind of wave and we recognized it because we were there to see it. I think that's an important point because we just kind of fell into the industry and then we saw it for what it was. What most teachers didn't see because as much as they are entrepreneurial, they're not like software tech kind of entrepreneurial. They're entrepreneurial in their own ways. They're building content businesses and brands like influencer brands, but not necessarily a SaaS that could scale almost infinitely in the branch or in the in the niche itself. Yeah, I have this mental model. I like the, I like the way you said, well, there was some luck, but also some skill, I will say, you know, and, and I have this mental model. I should probably write a blog post about it, but it's that, that success comes down to these three factors. It's luck, skill, and hard work. And in the case of the two of you, you know, you've already talked about the hard work. You said you work 24-7 in essence, uh, you know, for two years. The skill that the, the skills that the two of you have built up over the years applies to that to a certain degree, as well as being able to kind of forecast and notice the the Chinese market taking off and then that that little bit of luck. And I've seen startups have varying degrees of this. You know, you'll see someone get extremely lucky that they happen to come across an idea and then they really don't need that much skill or hard work to get it done, but it's very, very rare and you can't control luck. So I like looking at these really meticulous, repeatable startups where I think most of us are willing to do the hard work. I think it's building up skills over time and then hoping for that bit of luck that kind of, you know, pushes you over the edge, but not counting on 80, 90% of it to be luck. Yeah, you you have a lot of overlap with the opportunity uh, surface theory at this point, right? Because skills and hard work build the opportunity surface, and then you just need something to actually strike it, and that would be the luck component. The niche of selling to teachers... I've, I've heard some horror stories about it, to be honest, about price sensitivity and needing a lot of support. Is that correct? Like, was it, was it kind of a tough space to be in, in terms of just needing the volume of customers? Your price points, at least today, are $15 a month. So by kind of microconf's B2B SaaS standards, that it's pretty low price. I would expect high churn and price sensitivity. Is that accurate? Price sensitivity, 100%, but high churn, not at all. I mean, the teachers in this niche were already kind of pre-selected. So they were somewhat technical. They knew how to integrate 
a SaaS into their workflow much more than had we gone to a brick and mortar school, tried to then convince the school board or the principal, had to go and train teachers how to use the software. The the teachers already teaching in this niche were very self-directed and they were having a lot of trouble solving this problem that we ended up solving for them. So the high churn was not even an issue there. But the price point, we actually started lower. We started at $5 a mm-hmm. month, understanding that this, this uh, audience might be price sensitive. And then when they were converting so quickly and seeing the value so quickly, then we doubled the price to $10 a month, got rid of the $5 a month plan altogether. And then we ran it at that price point. Yeah, it was it was a 10 for a year, and then we decided to increase it again by 50% to what is now 15 monthly, and we released a referral system at the same time so that people could get the cheaper price, which was the actual price, like 10 bucks a month at that point, if they were referred or were referring, so people could go back to that price, so it didn't cost them that much. Um, there was a couple of mistakes that we made there when it came to grandfathering the the plans. We we didn't really ever set a horizon on that, so it was an infinite or, or like indefinite grandfathering of ten bucks a month plan if you had it before the I don't know December thirty first two thousand and eighteen or something. Then we would keep that forever, which also kept retention high, I guess, because people didn't want to lose their their plan that kind of level. But that kind of goes back to what Arvid was talking about at the beginning with this post-economic state of mind. We felt we had to grandfather all of those teachers in because we were more worried about losing them as customers than the potential gain of having them pay 50% more. Yeah, we didn't really want to experiment much with pricing because we really felt that if that is too much and we lose our customers, the whole business is going to implode. That's the kind of fear that that I had at that point, which is why referral system with this kind of really, really uh, high 30% coupon or something for life. Lots of the decisions we made came from not from a place of um, optimism, but of like severe pessimism of potential future. Yeah. And do you think those decisions were correct? Would you would you make those again? No. <laughs> well, they, they were correct for us and the business at the time. But if we were doing it again from a different financial security perspective or knowing that it wasn't as crazy. Can I just sure. interject here too? I think had we been isolated in our different roles, if we weren't being the CTO, CEO, and the people talking directly to our customers on the support desk, hearing the sometimes quite sad stories about people who couldn't make a $10 a month payment, they really, you know, we really empathized with our customers. And I know Arvid has a huge heart and would often gift uh, subscriptions to people. So that was more of just feeling, feeling like that was the right thing to do. For us, it wasn't a business decision. It was 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 more of a philanthropy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And I'm curious, I want to I want to find out like why did this grow so quickly? Was it was it just the referral program? You see, you know, you've talked about word of mouth being the main driver. The referral system only came in a year after we actually already had all this growth. So the Chinese schools that were hiring all of these teachers, they were doubling their the teachers that they had contract. It was it was kind of like a gig it was kind of like Uber for online teaching, right? So they hire these American teachers and 
they had 10,000 teachers when I started in 2017. They doubled by December of 2018. So they had 20,000 teachers. And when we sold in July of 2019, they were at 75,000 teachers. And this was one company alone. So we were really benefiting from this hiring rush of not only this one company, that's just, just one company that was the largest, but several other Chinese English companies coming up. Yeah, and we sold to the teachers directly. So we were benefiting just from the sheer number of them being recruited, because if we had tried to sell to the schools, it would have been a whole different thing. It would have been much more complicated and there's bureaucracy. And then there's the whole thing with getting into the Chinese market and which is almost, or it is technically impossible without having somebody in there to do the work with you. So we, we just decided against that. Partnering is also hard. So by selling directly in like a B2BC setting to the individual agents with a budget, which the teachers were, we could leverage the growth of that market without any middlemen, without any anything in the middle. And the one great benefit of teachers is that teachers love sharing and teachers organize in groups. They're essentially, they organize in tribes even. So the teacher community around these English as a second language online schools, they organize in Facebook groups, they are in Instagram communities. There is a lot of sharing, a lot of communicating going on. And if you can get into these communities as a part of them, as Danielle did, because she was a teacher at that point, then you see what people are talking about, what they are sharing with each other, and you can become become part of the conversation, become part of the actually people trying to solve their problems. And that's where we did our problem validation. That's where that we found all these kind of problems that people had. And we saw how many people of these teachers had the same kind of problems. Were they critical? Were they just nuisances or annoyances? And that's also where we started our marketing and where we did all of our marketing, which wasn't really too much. It boiled down to a number of comments on some Facebook posts. That's what we did because the tribe was so strong that once we actually put our solution in there and people recognized it as a product they, that they could really use, they started sharing it for us. The referral system we put in place because we were just raising our prices and we want to make it still affordable to the people that were currently purchasing our, the subscription to our software. But the actual growth comes from the tribal structure of the teacher community and from us finding the water cooler, finding the place where they were hanging out. Mm -hmm. And I would say it was lucky that they even knew that they had a problem. I think teachers are so used to doing the extra work for zero pay. And so it we really did get lucky that, yeah. that they recognized that this shouldn't be the case and that there could be options for them. Yeah, when, when you think about it, there, there's this whole thing about the prospect awareness funnel by Eugene Schwartz when it comes to like I'm completely unaware and problem aware, solution aware, product aware until they are fully aware of your product. We were lucky that people were already at the problem awareness and often solution awareness stage. Because while we didn't have competition in the actual industry, there were competitive alternatives. People were using Excel sheets and Word documents, or they were already starting to share their kind of templates that they used for their feedback on Google Docs or in certain groups and on Facebook. So we already saw people solving the problem in a rickety kind of way, everyone for themselves. And we just really consolidated this into a centralized system that also had the strong network effect, which mirrored the internal structure of the tribe that we had found on Facebook. Because 
in Feedback Panda, sharing was built into the process. People would write templates for their feedback and allow them to generate it easily, and then they could share it to what we call the cloud. And in the cloud, people could find templates by other teachers, use them, and modify them, and share them back. There was this whole community building uh, that happened around the actual data in our products, which had this gigantic network effect, pulling in even more people, because once they signed up, there was literally hundreds of thousands of templates for them to pick to make their job much faster. Yeah, and that's it's fascinating to hear that, the whole tribal structure that you're talking about, because I have not heard of a Bootstrap SaaS app that has grown as fast as you did by making some Facebook posts. You know, by five, because you said it's tribe, water cooler. That was kind of the key. So this feels to me, at least looking across the, the apps that I know about that have had fast growth, this feels like a one-off. Like it's it's this the uniqueness of the teachers and how it was like a confluence of events. A, it's the tribal structure. B, you found the water cooler. And C, it was growing so fast that you know people were just, just diving in. Do you agree with that? Or do you feel like your approach here could be reproduced in other spaces? So I think the... The main, I'm not sure if this makes it fall into the category of one-off or repeatable, but I think what we did once people actually got to Feedback Panda, we talked directly to them and we were selling them on our product. I mean, Arvid said there wasn't much competition. There was another SaaS that tried to offer something similar to what we were offering. And they, to my knowledge, don't have even a fraction of, of the teachers that, you know, signed up for Feedback Panda, I think that doing those things that don't quite scale or you don't see them scaling, you know, talking to a teacher daily, trying to get them to that moment of really understanding how the product works and then turning those first conversations into knowledge-based articles where teachers can find the information for themselves or communicating in a way that is kind of like a soundbite that they can take from that conversation, go back to the community, share the information. I think that communication style was actually how we activated yeah. the, the tribe for us. And, and, you know, those direct conversations using user engage at the very beginning and then migrated to, to intercom. Yeah, we, we always try to be in direct contact with people. And I think the tribe is one thing, but we did amplify it, right? We, we needed to amplify it. We needed to project a brand into the tribe that was both part of the tribe and solving something for them on a professional level. So we, we, we were the teachers that helped other teachers. And I think that's the transferable component as well. Like it's, it, it works in, in software development. And if you, if you sell a product to engineers as an engineer and you're part of that community, you have a reputation as being a good engineer. If you have that, that really helps, right? Because you sell it through your reputation, you sell it through some sense of authority and having a following already. And you were talking about this in, in, the, in the episode with Ruben as well, right? With, when a, if you don't have a, an audience, if you don't have a have a market well there is an audience somewhere you just haven't found it yet i believe that there's tribal or at least community structures for every single thing for every kind of thing we're part of i've been talking with a lot of con consulting clients recently and they are in specialty foods they are in document processing for specific kinds of jobs they are in many kinds of groups of people and whenever i talk to them 
after a while, we figure out, oh, there is an, a niche community. There is a group congregating somewhere. There's a meetup for this in this city. And there's like 30 people that go there at all times. There is this kind of online bulletin board where people, it looks like it's from the 80s, but that's usually a good sign because that shows that there's a community that has been around for a long, long time, hidden away in this one kind of niche location. You just really have to find it and become part of it and not do it the kind of markety way where you start trying to push your product from the beginning. You just become part of it because you want to be part of it. You want to talk to these people. You want to help them out. And then eventually you can put your product in there because it's a natural progression from being a part of the community to wanting to help the community. Yeah, I think there was a lot of integrity that we built through our brand. And something I didn't expect to do was release a product that wasn't quite perfect or finished. <laughs> anybody who knows me knows that I like to get things as close to perfect as possible before revealing it to anybody. But this would have been detrimental to, to Feedback Panda. And Arvid quite nicely balances me out in this <laughs> regard. We released the product. Then we got a lot of great feedback from the teachers in the community. And they thought that he was a wizard because they would give him their feedback. And then in a, a day or two, he would release the, the feature that they had won. And I'm not saying that you should build every feature that somebody asks you for. You know, we, we really looked through all of those examples, what really deserved to be a part of the product. But even that was just reinforcing this uh, dependability mm -hmm. on, on Feedback Panda. It's great. It's great to be makers who can ship fast in a space where all the software sucks because you don't have to be that good to be really, really impressive. So that that's cool. I love anecdotes like that. We used to sh ship stuff in the early days of Drip, same day. You know, someone would send a support email, how come it doesn't do this? And we'd literally build it two hours later, send them an email. That was, those were some of the the funnest ones. I'm curious, you're growing this company. It's, it's obviously moving very quickly. Why did you not hire someone to help? Was there just not enough work <laughs> that you needed help? Or, or was there some other reason for that decision? There's a short and a long answer. The short one is I'm an idiot and Danielle can no. tell you why. <laughs> so I would say that um, be careful when you get advice from books and podcasts without really critically examining whether they apply to your situation. I think we were both guilty of taking this advice higher late, higher late, higher late to heart. Mm -hmm. And and we what we may now in retrospect can say, we should have built a roadmap that said, okay, when we get to this goal, when we reach this amount of support tickets or whether it's tied to MRR or to the amount of work that you have, we could have said, this is when we're going to hire, but we didn't do that because we didn't expect to grow that quickly. I think yeah. we, we thought we had more time. Yeah, we, we didn't really set goals much. I think the the one and only goal that I set for myself was I want to grow this business to the unimaginable number of $50,000 MRR. And that's, that's going to be impossible. So might just as well set it as a goal. So once we hit that, like, yeah, what now? And even before, once we hit 10, oh, wow, this works. Or 20, okay, now we can pay ourselves. And okay. And then 30, 40, oh, this is still growing. Like the, there was never a moment of scheduled reflection. I've, I've been writing about this recently. I just remember the thing I called this continuous validation, but not just of your product, but actually of your business. Like, are you still in it for the same reasons? 
Are you still fine with what you're doing? These kind of things, had we done this, and we kind of did it sometimes, but by far not enough, we would have understood at least a year in that it would be fine to hire a customer service person. And you, you just alluded to it, I guess, like there wasn't enough to do for a full 40 hour a week kind of position. And to me, in my complete absence of knowledge and experience, if you hire somebody, it has to be a full-time position. That was what I thought. Of course you don't. Of course you can have somebody do this for the two hours a day that, that most people are asking questions and then do the rest like later or earlier or whatever. But to me, in the middle of it and always being interrupted by conversations on intercom at random hours, it felt like well, I might just as well do it myself until we have somebody to take it all away from me completely which meant that I blocked all of this. And I thought, oh, we can do it. I can do it. I can take care of it. Yeah, it cost me a lot of sanity, caused a lot of anxiety that I had to learn how to deal with. And now in retrospect, that we once we sold, we had to hire our replacements. So there was no way around that. And when we did that, I figured out, oh, this is actually easy and enjoyable. And I should have done this immediately. So that, that's one of the big learnings for me. Yeah, that's it's a good point. And you've touched on two problems, really, that I think a lot of, of founders face, especially in the bootstrap space. Number one, we have the savior complex where we feel like we need to do everything and it is hard to delegate or you have just a mental, you have a mental like a roadblock that won't let you hire someone part-time or you just don't think about it or you just push yourself to the brink of, of burnout and exhaustion. I think the other thing that, that it brings up for me is the lack of goals, lack of planning thing, it's a problem. Like there are reasons that larger startups and larger companies have all these planning meetings, you know, and, and forecast and have goals. And I know that so many of us, my, myself included, we leave the corporate world because there's so much bullshit that you have to deal with. So then we don't want to go start our own startup and put a bunch of bullshit into it. But there's a balance. Like if you throw it all out, you can find yourself in that situation where you have not, where you're not taking care of yourself. And you're frankly, you're not being a good steward of your own mental health, nor of your company, you know, and it can actually hurt the growth of your company. There's a lot of uh, negatives to come back. So I'm, you know, I'm glad we touched on that because I think folks should be aware that, that it's not all the way on the left, all the way on the right. Like there's a middle here where I do think even in smaller startups that we need to be mindful, you know, and, and do some thinking and planning about this stuff. Piggybacking on that, I'm curious, you know, during this two years of fast growth, there had to have been, I mean, you've already, you know, referenced a lot of ups and downs. The growth is amazing. It's fun. It's exhilarating. And the pain and the, the anxiety you've brought up, it can be debilitating and it can take, take a toll on you. Can you take me like, to a moment or a series of moments that you remember that perhaps were like a low point during the journey? I have a couple of good ones. And most of them, funny enough, are technical. I mean, that's that's what I was doing mostly, right? I was responsible for building the product, for maintaining uh, the infrastructure. Feedback Panda was built on essentially a cloud-native kind of thing. We put our software into Docker containers, and they were running on Google Cloud in the end. But we didn't start there. We started with a small, affordable, call it local cloud provider, some, some company uh, in Germany. And they were great until they weren't. And we ran into connectivity trouble and, and they had issues like providing the service and our, our service would crash. And that was already at a point where we had a couple hundred customers. So here I was 
having to deal with uh, the maintenance that I had to do to actually get the service back up at random times because this other startup that was just the same size as we were had issues configuring their their cluster, like the infrastructure that they were providing for us to run our software on. And that stuff started to accelerate. First, it was a couple minutes of downtime a day. Then it was half an hour. And then it turned into like full downtime for a day. Yeah, and, and I was just sitting there, and, and I think we were in Canada even at that point visiting Danielle's family. So I was just trying on my phone trying to get their weird little JavaScript UI that didn't work to restart the containers because they didn't have a CLI yet where I could actually, or an API even, where I could communicate with their system and then restart stuff automatically. So I was sitting in somebody's home that wasn't my own trying to fix the service that was running on infrastructure that was also not my own and that I had no control over because they also were like four dudes from Germany trying to build the next AWS. Big mistake, right? It was cheap and I didn't want to look into the, the Google Cloud documentation, so we chose that. Big, big mistake. It took the knowledge of a very capable friend and a couple hours late at night to actually migrate this whole thing over uh, just a couple hours, by the way. But it, yeah, I, I just pushed it uh, as far away from me as possible. I tried to believe that they could deal with the problem and get back to actually solving it and allowing us to have our service running. But at some point, just couldn't. So we migrated over to Google Cloud, and I think it had zero seconds downtime for the next 400 days. So that was a big problem. And I was just trying to stay focused on it because I couldn't sleep because there was always... Our alerting, our monitoring system was always like essentially waking me up with a call, and and I had to go and restart some container and try to manage it. It was brutal. I did not sleep well, and I still have some sort of um, monitoring PTSD whenever like a, a call comes in. I just one split second. Oh God, is it a server again? Even though I don't even own the business anymore, still have that to this day. Yeah, people and people ask founders why they sell their companies. You know, it's like these times I've been there, so I know I know what that feels like. Danielle, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, I was right there beside him. Obviously, even more powerless when some a service that you're using just goes down. So, was that your low point as well? One hundred percent. It was like that wasn't. It happened more than once mm. with this particular server before we moved over to a, a better solution, but. Yeah, that that would be. I I think there's one other point though, just to add a different perspective. We're co-founders and partners, so when something in life personal happens, it it was really happening to both of us. So, for example, last winter my grandmother was very sick and she ended up passing away, and we both had to, you know, Arvid really picked up the slack for me, but being a co-founder with your partner does mean that you're experiencing those personal events together, whether they're good or celebrations or, or tragic. It's just something to consider. It's not a low, low, but yeah. Well, it is a low, right? It's just not a business low. Yeah. It definitely makes it more, it makes it a lot more complicated, you know, to have that dual relationship of co-founder and partner. So I, I get it. I'm curious, we're running kind of short on time, but I have two more questions for you uh, that I'd love your thoughts on. The first is, when you started building Feedback Panda, did you intend to sell it from the start? Was that thought in your mind? And if not, when did that thought first occur to you? 
So before we actually started building the business and before Danielle was even teaching English online, I was working as a software engineer in, in Hamburg in Germany. And we live in Berlin, so that's a two-hour commute there and then two hours back. So some like three days of the week, I would commute for four hours. And I pretty much had nothing else to do because it was on, on a train, so I wouldn't have to drive than reading or listening to podcasts. And I was reading a lot of books. And a couple of the books that I read at that point were The E-Myth by Michael E. Gerber and Built to Sell by John Warlow. And Built to Sell had has really stuck with me from the beginning. So because I learned in that book in particular that building a sellable company is building a company you can run forever. And building a company that runs without you, where you as the owner actually benefit from the company running and other people or systems or automations are doing the work. So we never really intended to sell the business, but we build it as a sellable business anyway, because that was to us the optimal way to build a business. That when we actually got people that were interested in purchasing the company, then we thought about selling it. But from the beginning, we just really wanted to build a cool, efficient, and mostly highly automated business, because at least I am very lazy and I didn't want to work too much. Turned out I had to work quite a bit, but we still made it highly automated and hence sellable, which really helped when we, when it came to actually sell the business. Yeah, that's a, a good point that you make. I think that many people, especially, well, I think founders get involved in this kind of, this binary thinking about, I am never going to sell my business or I'm building it to sell. And I think building it to sell from the start helps you no matter what, right? And the idea of you said, you know, you're, you're lazy. That's an, an adaptive trait for a founder because you're lazy, but you're willing to put in hard work is the, is a thing. And lazy, I, I think about it just means, you know, highly efficient, right? And having a goal of having an automated business bringing in tens of thousands a month, I think is something that all of us would aspire to. Wrapping up, I'm curious, are you going to do it again? Do the two of you have the desire Coming 2021. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I would love to to hop back in. In fact, actually, we I, I co-founded a company while we still own Feedback Panda with the the hopes of building out this project. So absolutely, yeah. I I would love to get back in. It's quite interesting. I feel that our roles since we've sold have kind of reversed. I was very focused on you know, our brand image and, and nurturing the audience. And now I'm totally, I, I've really been looking into the, the no code uh, movement and, and trying to build up this product. Yeah. Another SaaS essentially. Yeah. Whereas I have started pretty much building an audience and writing. So like we really switched, like when we sold the business, we both kind of fell into this place where we didn't know what to do and we've been making our way out of it. And I did this through writing, started a blog and started a podcast and started a newsletter and just committed to actually putting the information that I had in my mind that I had learned over the last couple of years, both with Feedback Panda and all the prior things that I've been part of, put that in writing. And then I started being on Twitter and talking to people and building an audience. And I wrote a guide and write a book eventually and all these kinds of things. That is where I'm going. But of course, I'm still a software engineer and I still want to build things. So We'll see where, where we really end up, but there's a lot of projects that are already on the horizon. There's always people coming, to, knocking on our door with new ideas and suggestions, of course. But I, I don't think we're, we're done. We are now at a point where we can actually make much riskier and more interesting kind of decisions in the projects that we're involved in. So why not, right? Yep. 
that's a great that's a great place to be in, right? It's something a lot of us, many, many of us aspire to. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show. If folks want to keep up with you on Twitter, you're Arvid Call, that's K-A-H-L, and Simpson Danny K. We will link both of those up in the show notes. And Arvid, you're doing a lot of writing at thebootstrappedfounder.com. And if folks wanted to check out Danielle's website, it's simpsondanielle.com. So thanks again for joining me today. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks a lot. If you have a question for me or one of our guests, please leave us a voicemail, 888-801-9690, or email questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. If you're not subscribed, you should search for startups in any podcatcher, and we're going to be in the top few. We do have full transcripts of each episode, even though they are a few weeks behind at any given time. Thanks so much for hanging out again with me this week, and I'll see you next time.